Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. It is a Wednesday, March the 30th. We're almost out of March. You believe that, folks? I'm Andrew Donaldson. Welcome back to Heard Tell. We're so thrilled you're with us, giving us the most precious thing you have your time. We're going to turn down the noise on a variety of stories today. It's a few more lighthearted things today. It's been kind of heavy the last few days, uh, but we do have some serious topics. We're going to talk about uh, the Will Smith incident. Only problem was a lot of people on social media directed their invective at the wrong Will Smith. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, Joe Biden's miscues and some of the things he said overseas. We already talked about the speech he gave and people overreacted. Are folks overreacting to the gaffes and the misstatements that he's made? Are they even gaffes at all? Uh, we'll check in with a good friend of ours has done some writing about that. We'll cover that in just a little bit. Um, also, a state senator in Nebraska got himself in a whole lot of trouble giving a floor speech about something that he thought was going on in school systems. The problem was he was just reacting to a meme that wasn't true, and he ended up looking really, really silly. We'll delve into that. Uh, he made comments about furries. Yes, furries. So we'll get into that story in just a little bit. A great guest today on the program, Corey Walker uh, from Young Voices. Uh, he has some great insights. We're going to talk some little bit bigger picture politics, a little bit bigger picture cultural issues, uh, President Biden, things that are going on. Uh, great interview with him. Corey Walker, you're not going to want to miss that later in the program. But first, uh, let's go over to the Ukraine and the Russia situation where they are just continuing to propagate war crimes against Ukraine. But something that we've been talking about and lots of other folks have been talking about, but we're not seeing it a whole lot in the media yet, but it's starting to seep in, is that this is not happening in a vacuum. We say it all the time on this program. Things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. What's going on in Ukraine right now is going to be part of a sequence of some really bad stuff that I don't think is going to get covered well from the go. Let me explain what we're talking about. Ukraine used to be referred to during the old Soviet Union days as the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. In fact, that's one of the reasons Vladimir Putin wants it back under Russian control. It is a massive landmass, but it also has huge agricultural resources, also has huge natural resources. We've talked a lot about the gas and uh, oil pipelines that run through it to get to Europe. Uh, AFP, that's the French news agency, has a chart out and said Russia is accused before the U.N. Security Council of causing a global food crisis and putting people at risk of famine by starting the war in Ukraine, which serves as the breadbasket of Europe. And this chart comes out and it starts at 100 percent and then scales down the list of countries who are the most dependent on Russia and Ukraine for wheat and grain shipments. Uh, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, 
Georgia, Somalia, all those are 90% or more dependent on their grain supplies. You can go down the list. Belarus, of course, is a neighboring country. Kajikistan, Turkey. But there's some others in here that we don't pay attention to. Uh, Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo, Turkey, Finland, Lebanon, which is already a hot mess for a lot of issues. They sure don't need a food shortage on top of it. Lebanon getting almost 80% of their grain from there. Egypt, Madagascar, Benin, Albania, the other Congo, Tanzania, Libya, Pakistan, Liberia, Rwanda, the list goes on and on and on. This is a huge issue. Um, reading from a note, this is a particular note was picked up by Yahoo News, but the responsibility for waging the war on Ukraine and for the war's effect on global food security falls solely on Russia. That's U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman said during the Security Council meeting at the U.N. She's absolutely right, by the way. France's ambassador to the U.N., Nicolas de Rivier, furthered that Russia's aggression against Ukraine is increasing the risk of famine around the world and that those representative populations in developing countries would be the first affected. Russia will no doubt try to make us believe that this is a sanctions adopted against it that is creating imbalance in the world security situation for food, De Rivier said. But Moscow's UN ambassador, Vasily Nabeznia, indeed countered and said the unbridled sanctions hysteria that the West has unleashed against Russia will be to blame. But that's not true. Uh, the UN is also announcing some initiatives to try to deal with this. But here's the main thing. Uh, humanitarian Affairs Joyce Musulia, a UN U.S. Assistant Secretary General, said, quote, Ukraine threatens to make things even worse in the world's biggest humanitarian crisis is already, such as Afghanistan, Yemen and the Horn of Africa, where food insecurity is already a current problem. My concern here is very simple. What Vladimir Putin has done with his war crimes in Ukraine is not just going to kill Ukrainians. It's not just going to kill the Russian troops that are the fodder for his ambitions. It's going to kill a lot of people worldwide because it's interrupting the food supply. And it's going to places like Africa, like the Middle East, like Southeast Asia, where they really, really, really need this grain and don't have any way to really uh, get it any other way. A lot of people are going to die, but it's not going to make the news. In fact, you can already feel the shift that the U.S. media and news media is starting to get a little bored and not covering uh, Ukraine as much as it did. This is the natural way of things. We knew this was coming. But a lot of people are going to die, and they're not going to die on TV because there's no bombs or explosions or trending viral clips to it. Famine is a horrible way to die, and way too many people worldwide die of it. And we need to keep it clear in all the many war crimes of Vladimir Putin is perpetrating on humanity right now, and Ukraine specifically. There's a lot of people in diverse places on planet Earth that are going to die because of what Vladimir Putin has done. They're going to die of famine and hardship and all those deaths are on his head just as much as the ones from the bombs in Ukraine. More Hertel right after this. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. Uh, still some fallout over the president's trip overseas. He had a couple of comments that were taken as, depending on your perspective on things, they were either gaffes or he was saying things he wasn't supposed to say or he was revealing the true intent of what was going on. You can imagine how these things go when the president's overseas and says something. Now, we already covered the speech 
that he gave in Poland and how people polarized that right off the jump. But there was some other things. There was the accusation that he was after regime change because he said that Putin couldn't stay in power. And there was the little bit of a statement when he addressed the 82nd Airborne Division in Poland when he said, when you're there, referring to Ukraine, to U.S. troops, which got some people's uh, radar up. Let's go to our friend Jay Caruso. He writes a newsletter called The Monday Notice. This one happened to come in on Tuesday, though, because he did one over the weekend on the death of Foo Fighters drummer uh, Taylor Hawkins. So this was the Tuesday, Monday notice. But Jay's a great guy. He put it this way. He said, forget for a moment the debate over whether or not it is a gaffe. This is Jay Caruso in the Monday notice. He said it anyway. Biden's advisors objected to him saying it. He said it anyway. And then the same people ran out to say that that isn't what Biden meant. Where is the leadership if his underlings will undermine him so easily? <clears throat> and if he did mean to say it, why not just say, come on, Jack, I said what I meant. I meant what I said. That's very Biden-esque. It's reminiscent of what happened when Trump was president. Jake Russo writing in Monday Notice. He'd say something dumb and people would fall on their swords defending it, knowing it was bad, even if someone in the White House walked it back. It didn't get better when Biden took questions from the press about his recent statements. When Biden addressed the Army's 82nd Airborne Division in Poland, he said, when you are there, quote, referencing Ukraine, Peter Ducey asked about it. And Biden claimed he was saying that to the Ukrainian troops training in Poland, his staff then had to clarify the explanation. And this is the remarkable line from the walk, walk back, quote, a White House official told CNN later Monday that there are Ukrainian soldiers in Poland who are interacting on the regular basis with U.S. troops which is what Biden had referred to earlier in the day when he sought to explain his previously remark. Back to what Jay said. When questioned about saying Putin can no longer remain in power, Biden said he was merely expressing his outrage over Putin's behavior. Oh, really? I thought it was strategic and that he was trying to keep Putin guessing. His staff gave a different explanation initially. Bizarrely, people who want to defend Biden do so in the context of comparing him to Trump. I say it bizarrely because why would anybody want to compare him to Trump. Why would anyone want to use Trump as a benchmark for competence and leadership? It's akin to boasting that your shortstop's 200 batting average because it's so much better than the previous guy and his 150 batting average. Instead, people frame Biden not as a normal improvement over Trump. Instead, people frame Biden not as a nominal improvement over Trump, but as someone vastly superior in all facets of what people want in a president. Additionally, Biden's claim of expressing outrage at Putin's action is not something that speaks well to the president's temperament. In times of crisis, the expectations we have of leader is resolute, disciplined, and measured in their own words. What Biden said about Putin will not keep the Kremlin strong man guessing. That's in quotes. What it will do was give Putin a propaganda talking point. The war is not going how Putin hoped. If NATO will not enter the conflict, the only way out of it is for de-escalation on the part of Russia. If Putin thinks his power is at stake, it could force him to get desperate. And then who knows what happens then? As Jay Caruso writing in the Monday Notice, great newsletter. You need to subscribe to it. Highly recommend it. When you're dealing with things like Joe Biden, we have 50 years of book on Joe Biden. It's very clear who Joe Biden is. Joe Biden has two modes. Okay. He has all shucks where he tries to just kind of nice guy his way through things. And when that fails, he bows up and he goes into F you Joe Biden mode. And sometimes in press conferences, like we've seen in Europe and sometimes here, he can do both back to back on the same question, depending on how he's asked. If his all shucks routine or his initial statements don't work, he does not like pushback and he does not like criticism. 
nor does his staff. Now understand they got to spin. I got to understand that they got to work these things a certain way. But this is completely in the character of Joe Biden. He bows up. He doesn't admit a whole lot of fault. He gets angry easily. The problem is these things don't work real well on the world stage. If he says something like this, they need to be plain about it, that he said something he wasn't supposed to. But that's Joe Biden. We got the book on him. My question, like with Jay, is with his supporters. You just spent years and years telling us that you can't just defend the president because you like him no matter what he says. Yet here you are doing it. We can be clear out about our president. We can still support our president. There were some things on this trip that I said that I actually think Joe Biden did a very good job on. We can be clear out about our presidents. We don't have to put on the team jerseys and raw riot, especially when it comes to global politics and foreign policy and a shooting war that is killing thousands. We should hold our president to a very high standard. And you can hold their standard whether you voted for him or not, whether you support him or not. Matter of fact, if you care about your president, you'll really want to hold him to standards because that's what's best for him, what's best for you, what's best for me, what's best for our country. Don't just go changing the narrative and changing your standards of what is and isn't the right way to do things just because whether or not you like the president. Y'all got a lot of social media history over the last few years. Make sure you're being consistent. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, another one of those great Young Voices contributors we'd love to have on. Going to get a little bit of a wider perspective on a couple different things in culture and politics. Exciting to have him. Uh, he's from the south side of Chicago originally. He currently finds himself in the D.C. area. Uh, going to be doing some more learning down there in Northern Virginia. Corey Walker, how are you, my friend? Thank you for your time today. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thrilled to have you. Um, let's just start there. You're in the nation's capital. Uh, you are an observer of culture and politics. Uh, I'm doing this from the national narratives and from what I can gather, but you're in D.C. We're hearing a lot of talk about President Biden, of course, his performance in Ukraine. We just got new polling numbers on his domestic performance. And as we all suspect, the economy is the hot button issues, inflation, gas prices, food prices, these sorts of things. You're in the nation's capital. What's the perception of President Biden's leadership right now, both the current crisis and kind of the background crisis that normal Americans are paying a little bit more attention to than maybe the media is those kitchen table issues like inflation, like gas prices? What's the feel there on the ground right now? Well, I would say that from um, within D.C., I mean, D.C. in and of itself is kind of like an echo chamber, right? So it's kind of difficult to get a, a sense of what the nation is thinking, largely because of the fact that you know, people who live in D.C. Um, are in a bubble. Right. Um, and let's be real here. I mean, if people in D.C. actually did have a good sense or good instinct of what Americans uh, at large thought, um, I think their priorities and the policies they push forward would look pretty different than what they actually are. Um, I think that most people in D.C., uh, when they think of the way Biden is performing, there's a lot of disappointment, right? On both, on all ends, right? If you're a conservative or a liberal, but I mean, for a lot of people, like uh, there are people who wanted voting rights reform, obviously, but that wasn't the most important thing uh, on their on their agenda, in my opinion, in many people's opinion. And many of my friends who uh, work uh, within, uh, within DC, who work um, on Capitol Hill, have been really frustrated with the lack of focus by the Biden administration. Uh, in regards to um, 
being able to, to really, really narrow in on the issues that most Americans care about, which is the economy, the inflation, uh, jobs, uh, crime, which is, you know, a huge, massive issue that Democrats keep trying to play down and COVID, right? I mean, Biden was elected to bring normalcy back to our country after President Trump, which love him or hate him. He definitely wasn't um, a normal president, right? So I think that Biden has been a really huge disappointment. Um, There's a lot of hope, I think, with uh, liberal Democrats that uh, he'll be able to, you know, um, improve his numbers eventually if COVID ever goes down, which I'm not sure if it ever will recede or go back to normal. But um, there's hope that, you know, if they can get a handle on COVID, um, eventually get a handle on the economy, that uh, Biden's numbers will improve. But it's difficult. You know, I mean, gas prices are really high. I was at the grocery store the other day. Um, I literally had they were rationing meat. I couldn't buy as much meat as I wanted to because I wanted to throw a barbecue. So I had to uh, only buy uh, two packs of chicken instead of buying four packs of chicken. They put on the grill. Um, and the, I think those little things that Americans see every day that are causing their lives to be more difficult um, are really contributing to why his poll numbers are so unimpressive. And I think a lot of people in D.C. Uh, see that, you know, I mean, when times are bad, the president gets the gets all the blame and times are not really good for most Americans right now. Yeah, I think you hit on an important point talking to Cory Walker, Young Voices. There, there's certain things that just burn through. And like, even though we had, you know, the State of the Union speech, which the president did pretty well at, because he usually does well at set piece things, we'll call it that. Uh, the Ukraine stuff, there hadn't been a major misstep there. He's been in line with our allies. Normally, those would be things he would be getting some kind of a bump out of. Yeah. I think you're making a good point of it's not that he's really doing anything, you know, horrifically wrong other than just being Joe Biden and the things that, that come with Joe Biden that are baked into the cake at this stage of his game. I just don't think you're going to have any smart one-liner or any clever slogan or any kind of a big policy initiative that overrides things like gas prices and inflation, because those are just so ever-present in people's faces right now. Like you said, you you went to just do a barbecue and there's food and somebody's going to get blamed for that. Not you personally, but when people do it, when you're in the big chair, you get the good and the bad. And this is one of those things that it's not all President Biden's fault. It's a lot of different factors. Those are lagging indicators we talk about all the time. But when you're yeah. on the when you're in the chair, you get the blame and prices are up. He's going to get the blame. And I think part of it is just the fact that Biden himself has been pushed so, so much by the progressive left wing uh, flank of the Democratic Party to embrace a lot of these policies that just naturally are going to drive up gas prices. Right. Like when you are so opposed to fracking and oil extraction and um, when you're so opposed to um, energy independence, a lot of this stuff uh, makes it much more difficult uh, for you to be able to, um, you know, keep those prices at a level that most Americans think is reasonable, right? Because these, these resources are scarce. And when you're restricting supply, of course, prices are going to go up. That's just basic economics. Um, we don't live in a magical world where like oil just comes out of thin air. I mean, that stuff has to be extracted from somewhere. So there's always going to be trade-offs. And I think the Biden administration, um, has done a lot of pandering to progressives on a lot of these uh, issues and hoping that would pay off, but it hasn't paid off for them um, in, in poll numbers. Uh, it's not being approved by the American public. Um, I think the ironic thing is in the abstract, a lot of Americans do like these things, uh, these ideas of environmentalism. Um, but however, when you look at it in 
you know, uh, how it actually impacts people when these policies are enacted. Uh, I think that's where the discrepancy lies, because, I mean, who does want to live in a world where, you know, all power comes from like, you know, solar and wind. But the reality is, is that uh, there's a transition cost and also it's just not as effective. So, you know, the buck stops somewhere. And I think for most Americans, uh, they don't like having to live with the pain of having to spend more money and feel feeling like they're poorer. Like no one wants that. And I think Biden is paying a significant price for that. And even if you don't like President Trump, I think most Americans, if they're being honest, would say that their personal lives individually were better off under Trump, uh, even if you don't like Trump as a human being, which I think a lot of people find themselves in that position right now. Has the environment changed, to, not the environment like we're talking about energy, but the media environment, the political environment, has that changed as well? Because I know you've been writing about energy and um, specifically things like fracking, oil extraction, natural gas extraction. Mm-hmm. I think the environment of how people understand these things has changed a little bit because let, let, let's just back up for a second. We've had two plus years of COVID where I think people got an education on how supply chain works that they probably didn't previously have, the worldwide globalized supply chain. So they understand better now than they did maybe three or four years ago that world events affect the supply chain. So now on the heels of that, we have uh, Ukraine and we have Russia, and they know that that's a gas-driven issue. I think people's literacy on this topic has just gone up to where they naturally know it's like, oh, war in Europe, Russia's a major energy importer, energy prices are going up. I think we may just have a better educated and a better technology environment where people can bifurcate these things a little bit and go, okay, this one part of this isn't President Biden's fault. But this part still is President Biden's fault. And I don't think maybe the media is giving credit that we have this couple of years of education on how global supply chains affect folks. And they understand it better now than maybe they did prior. But do you think like the average American really is um, thinking that deeply about this in terms of like they understand how global supply chain works and how all these like complex uh, geopolitical issues actually impact a global supply chain? Um, I'm kind of cynical about that sort of thing. You're right that we have more information. We have the worldwide Internet at our fingertips. Um, and we have more information and, uh, at our disposal than ever before, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people are more well-informed because misinformation is also right out there. And particularly on the right, the GOP is very good at weaponizing this sort of, uh, uh, this sort of landscape in which things are going pretty poorly. And they're really good at laying blame at the president's feet. They're really good at that much better than Democrats ever were, um, so I, I'm not so exactly sure. I mean, there's a lot of things people will ban- blame the president for that, in my opinion, just th- doesn't make any sense. Um, he's also made some sacrifices, which, for example, like not uh, choosing to import oil from Russia, which may be morally correct. But then you also have to weigh that out with electoral concerns. And, you know, and look, I mean, we also know for a fact that Germany is still importing oil from Russia. A lot of European countries are still buying Russian oil. Uh, So to me, I think that, um, you know, Biden in a lot of ways has to figure out, you know, like what exactly he wants because his administration's all over the place, but he's trying to walk this weird line between being progressive and being a moderate. It's just very difficult to do that. And, um, I think that is at the crux of his issues. Um, I mean, maybe the American public is more well-informed, like you say, but um, I could say for on my personal end, like I'm just a very cynical person when it comes to that. And I think most people just care about your bread and butter issues of 
you know, can they afford their lives? Are they better off now than they were, you know, before the president was elected? And since that's the answer to that question is no, for most people, uh, most people's lives are not better off. Um, I think that's why he's struggling so much. Yeah, fair enough. I was trying to be optimistic and you pull me back into cynicism. So fine. I'm so sorry about that. No, but yet the reason I bring that up is because you have something stupid like the toilet paper thing and everybody yeah. panicked. And then after about four or five days, everybody went, well, wait a minute, this is stupid. We're doing this to ourselves. And they don't remember that consistently, but we can rise to the occasion from time to time. And I'm just hoping that maybe we can do that here a little bit. To your further point, though, I think you're absolutely right. I think it is these kitchen table issues that are hurting the president right now. And I think they're hurting him because the reality, <laughs> part of the reason we say it's not his, some of this isn't all his fault. The flip side of that is there's a lot of this he can't really do a whole lot about either. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're right. There's a lot of, I mean, Biden has been deeply unfortunate, right. In the hand that he has drawn. Um, he drew the hand of having a pandemic, which is, you know, not great, but at the same time, you know, uh, Trump also like went through the same thing because the pandemic had occurred uh, when Trump was in office. Um, I think part of the problem is even though he can't control some of these things, like he did run on this idea um, or this messaging that I'm a competent adult and I have all this experience and we need an experienced adult to get us out of the pandemic and get us back to normalcy and bring back decency into our, our, our country. And like I've said before, we just don't have that. Like, you know, I mean, we, we have lived through multiple waves of COVID, which are not his fault, right? Like, let's be clear, it's not his fault. But with that said, the constant virtue signaling around COVID in terms of continuing mass mandates, when, you know, uh, California has had as many COVID cases uh, per capita as a state like Florida, which has no restrictions whatsoever, um, it just doesn't make sense to me. And quite frankly, it feels a lot like Democrats are like virtue signaling towards their base uh, at the expense of, for example, kids being able to go to school and like breathe freely and get a, a quality education. Like you're gonna have them be remote schooled. And that's part of the reason why Democrats are facing a blab ba- uh, bloodbath across the country, not just Biden personally, but this is affecting Democrats everywhere. Like I am in DC. Uh, right south of me is Virginia, and uh, and we ha- they have a new governor right now, uh, Glenn Youngkin, largely because of school closures, which was a huge thing. I know critical race theory was made a big ballyhoo in the media, but school closures was the biggest reason uh, why Glenn Youngkin won his race. And like I said, it's a bread and butter issue when you're keeping kids out of schools, you're enforcing them to wear masks that they don't need to wear, when you're forcing them to be virtual because of COVID and stuff like that. Parents get mad, and so they demand change. Um, I do think that for 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 Biden himself, it's going to be really difficult because he come the Democratic base has become increasingly radicalized and polarized, much like the Republican Republican base as well has become that. They both sides are this way. I don't want to just seem like I'm just bashing Democrats. Republicans become radicalized as well, but I think that once you have to go so far in the extreme of um, trying to pander to your base which is disproportionately located uh, in urban areas, uh, which have less electoral power, uh, that makes him a much more uh, vulnerable candidate uh, in a national election. So Joe Biden's strength was that he was relatively strong, for at least for a Democrat, with particularly white rural voters and white male rural voters. Um, it, I, if, if that erodes, it's going to be difficult to see him winning re-election. 
Um, and so I, I think even though these, a lot of these things are not particularly his fault directly, um, I do think some of his policies, at least some of the way they reacted to the circumstances around them, um, have simply just made it worse. Uh, we're back with Corey Walker. Great conversation. Uh, let me throw it to you this way, because we were talking about President Biden. I can't I forget who did this on the Internet. A couple of different people have pointed it out, but I think there's some truth to it. And you tell me what you think. But they have said that the problem with the Democratic Party right now is they need candidates under 70, but they need staffers that are over 40, that there's definitely <laughs> a generational problem going on, because like with Joe Biden, to be fair to him, he has to staff his White House with what he's got from the party. Right. And that means right. you're going to get a lot of 20, 30, under 40, out of college. The, you know, the grunt level staffers, all due respect, but that's, you know, that's what those jobs are. Those are going to skew more and more progressive, probably far more progressive than he really means to be. He's always been kind of a middle of the line Demo- liberal Democrat. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know how you solve that problem in the Democratic Party for right now, because I think there's just this little bit of a generational change. We saw it with the Bernie Sanders stuff a little bit. We yeah. see it with the squad where you have a louder and louder progressive base, but they don't have the constituency to take over the party yet. Thus, you get President Biden, who did have the constituency to bring everybody together. But after Biden, I don't really see the bridge gap before they become ascended to the whole party. There's there's a gap there, and I think that might be where some of that tension you're talking about with the progressive policies. I think that's where some of that's coming. And I think that's built into the party. I don't know that that's really a fixable thing. Um, like you said, uh, the reality is that Democrats have moved well far left to where they were, even during the Obama administration. Uh, it's kind of wild to me that so many Democrats view the Obama years as like a failure when they held office. I mean, uh, there were many problems with the Obama administration, but he was still a two-term president. Uh, the first black president was able to win a majority of the white vote. So obviously he did something right. And I think the reality is that Obama was a moderate, at least when he ran in 2008. Um, he was willing to make a lot of cultural concessions on these large cultural issues. You cannot do that anymore as a Democrat, right? Like you have to be hard line on every single issue. Um, Biden himself used to be pro-life, right? And now, you know, like that's unthinkable. Not only do can you be like, can you have, do you have to be pro-choice as a Democrat? You have to support getting rid of the Hyde Amendment. You have to support federal funding of abortion and making abortion free and, you know, uh, free lollipops and ice cream outside the abortion clinic or something, right? Like, like that's where the Democratic Party has gone. And this is, I'm not trying to make this specifically about abortion, but I'm using that as an example of the reality is that both parties become very polarized on a lot of these issues that impact, um, you know, mainstream Americans. Now, Going far left on social and cultural policy appeals to young people, people in the urban centers and urban cores. Those people dominate in the Democratic Party establishment. They also dominate in the media, which is why if you go on Twitter, I mean, you think that, you know, uh, most people were like one inch to the right of Karl Marx. Right. Like that's that's how far left Twitter is. And that is kind of like driving a discourse in lots of the Democratic Party, social media, uh, being liked by Hollywood, being liked by uh, the people who write for the New York Times. All these people are on college campuses of which they're only getting one message. And it's always like kind of like the most left winning progressive message. Um, and that's all they have. And then they go into corporations, which have become increasingly more progressive, or they go into uh, law schools, graduate programs, or they go into government many times. Um, around other people who've been inundated with that same messaging. And that's all they 
since they're in that cocoon and that's all they've, that's all the only type of person that they've been exposed to for such long periods of time, um, they, it becomes like a sounding board, right? Um, in which like there's no dissenting opinion allowed. Uh, the Democratic Party has become very much to the left of the median American because the median American did not go to college. You got to remember that. So when you're constantly making policies and pushing talking points that um, appeal to the uh, appeal to college students, basically or college grads, college grads, you're always going to be out of step with the median American. Um, when you're talking about, you know, should we refer to people of Latin descent as Latino or Latinx? Uh, that is um, an example of like, like when you have fallen off the deep end, right? Or when you're trying to call, you know, um, uh, pregnant women birthing people or, or trying to make everyone use the word birthing people or trying to police people on pronoun use and all this other stuff. None of this appeals to the median American, right? And that's not to say you can't care about women or you can't care about trans people or people of color. You can and you should because those are Americans as well. Uh, but with, with that said, the constant pandering uh, on these identity issues doesn't appeal to anyone. It doesn't appeal to minority groups or women. Um, it's done to appeal to a, a very affluent, college-educated, and disproportionately white uh, donor class who likes that sort of thing. Um, I mean, I remember like there were so many polls during um, the, the, uh, the presidential campaign that showed that most Americans, including most black Americans, did not care what race the vice president was. We didn't care if Joe Biden chose a white person or a woman or a man or whoever to be the vice president. People just want someone that would be Trump. In other words, they just want the best candidate. Joe Biden put a restriction, oh, I'm only going to choose a woman, right? No one asks for that. Who asks for that? Except for like the most radical people who probably write for like New York times or once like Oberlin or something for college. So it's like the constant pandering of those people is just really off-putting. And I think that makes it really difficult. Joe Biden in the nineties, nineties version of Joe Biden would probably be a much stronger president than the 2022 version of Joe Biden, right? The Joe Biden that wasn't necessarily caught up in all the woke politics that really appeals to like maybe 5% of the population. That would be, a Joe Biden that I think would be a very strong two-term American president and quite frankly, maybe the president that we need. Um, but what we have going on right now within the Democratic Party makes it really untenable. You know, I grew up in a Democratic household, a Democratic family. A lot of my family, they may vote for Joe Biden, but they don't like Democrats uh, at this point. And quite frankly, I, I don't really see what have the Democrats given to working class people without college educations to really have earned their vote. Um, and that's really a shame because it's going to open up the door for other people. I think it's going to open up the door for Trump to run in 2024. And I think he has a decent chance of winning because uh, the Democrats have alienated so many middle Americans. Yeah, we've been picking on the Democrats. So let's talk about the Republicans for a minute. Yeah, for they, sure. they, they've got a hot mess on their hands right now of what do you do with President Trump right now? Because he's not on the ballot for the midterms, but he's trying to make himself on the ballot for the midterms. Yeah. He, He's trying to set up for 2024 or at least fundraise like he's going to set up for 2024. But some of his picks uh, in Georgia, uh, the Senate race in North Carolina, a couple other places, he's done these early endorsements and they're not shaking out. Um, yeah. I, you mentioned Glenn Youngkin earlier, so let's just use that because we've got raw data. We don't have to speculate on that one. He seemed to find the formula of not antagonizing Trump voters, but not really being able to keep some distance to Trump personally. Now, some of that was because Trump didn't really pay a lot of attention to that race. Let's just call it what it was. 
It's not like Georgia where he's personally invested or Florida where he's personally invested. So there might've been some of that, but is that scalable? Is that Youngkin model of running slightly more moderate, the, some of the Trump policies, but keeping Trump yeah. the man separate from it? Do you think that's scalable or do you think that was a one-off? And of course that works as long as the real Donald Trump doesn't show yeah. up. How much is he going to show up or not show up in this midterm? I think that's the question. Yeah, I think that Glenn Youngkin did a masterful job, like you said, of kind of like uh, riding kind of like that 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 middle road of being Trumpy, but not too Trumpy, uh, not antagonizing the Trump voters, courting the Trump voters, while also courting suburbanites at the same time. That's very difficult to do, but he managed to do it. Um, and look, I, I think that in theory, it's scalable, but I think it's also difficult, right? I think that... Um, not every place is Virginia. Virginia is a very specific sort of situation in which you have these hardcore, very right-wing Republicans, but then you also have in Northern Virginia, a lot of families that work and live in DC, very cosmopolitan, uh, very affluent. Um, and, and that's a demographic that has, I guess, maybe in the early 2000s voted Republican, but has shifted to Democrats because Democrats have started courting more of that affluent suburban uh, college uh you know, college grad demographic. Uh, that's a demographic that I think Republicans should court, but I think it's going to become much more difficult uh, to when you take into consideration the fact that, um, you know, the Republicans also have been pushed to the right and uh, much more radicalized in issues like abortion, um, much more radicalized in issues like race, right? Both sides have been radicalized on race, but in just in different ways, um, radicalized in LGBT rights, right? But moving towards a more regressive model of, for example, things like don't say gay, don't say gay bill in school or the way you treat uh, transgender youth, right? These are all complex issues. Um, I don't think either side is really in the right personally, but I also think that when you take these very aggressive culture war stances, you're going to turn off people in the middle and the, the people in the middle are typically suburbanites, right? And independent voters. Um, so I think it's going to be really difficult for any uh, Republican to be able to uh, scale that up. And also, as you said, when Trump gets involved in the race, because I think we all know he's going to run in 2020, that's going to really make it difficult for, I think, any candidate. Because, like, do you really run against Trump? Right. Can you, is Trump beatable? I don't know. Um, I mean, the Republican Party is a party where the supermajority of voters overwhelmingly believe that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. And it's not even close, probably like around 70 to 80 percent of them believe it at minimum. So at, at, at that point, like if they believe Trump is the rightful president of the United States, um, is there anyone that can really, you know, beat Trump? Right. Um, I think maybe Ron DeSantis. I think DeSantis is really good at mixing this sort of like uh, competent technocrat uh, type of identity while also leaning really heavily into the, the culture wars, which. I think might be able to win enough suburbanites while also winning the Trump vote to be able to become a president of the United States, maybe. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think it'll be interesting to see how the 2024 GOP primaries shake up. But like my prediction is that if Trump does run, um, you're going to see the the field clear for him relatively quickly, because like you may not losing against Trump isn't just losing, right? Like you have also the, the real risk of being Jeb Bush to where like you just become completely irrelevant and you become a joke. And so do you want to blow out your political capital uh, running against Trump in 2024 if you don't believe that he's beatable? It's a big risk.
Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's the way I see it. I think the GOP is still the party of Trump, uh, but I, him endorsing people isn't enough, right? I think for Trump, um, uh, people go to Trump because he's Trump. Like, it's not like that thing where it's like, you know, like a Netflix algorithm where it's like, well, if you like this show, you may like that show. Like, it's not like, oh, well, if you like Trump, you'll like uh, Vernon Jones or whoever, right? Like, people like Trump for Trump. He's a, he's a very specific sort of entity. So, um, yeah, like, I, 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 my opinion is that he's going to run again. I think he will, will win the GOP nomination. It's not guaranteed. Uh, but, look, I, I still think he still has a firm grasp on that party. Corey Walker, outstanding conversation. We got to leave it there. Uh, let folks know where they can find you, your writing, your social media, what you have going on, and where they can follow you until we have you back on again, which we hope to do. Yeah, you can follow me. My Twitter is uh, at Corey Writing. Uh, my name is spelled C-O-R-E-Y. And then um, writing is like the other part of the handle. The other social media um, right now, I'm a contributor at Reason Magazine. Um, and also I've written for Real Clear and The College Fix. So those are the places you can find me if you're interested. Yeah, he's a great writer. He's got a piece out at Real Clear Energy on fracking in Russia that you should definitely check out. Look for him on Reason. Corey Walker, uh, we'll have you back. We're going to be talking about these same things all year long, I suspect, and we'll touch back in with you soon, my friend. Thank you for the time. Sure, 100%. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, I don't even know where to really start with this one from our buddy Jim Swift. He uh, pointed this one out to me. Um, Washington Post, during a televised debate over Nebraska's school funding bill on Monday, Republican State Senator Bruce Bostelman brought up an issue he found particularly troubly, troubling, furries. Now, furries are folks that dress up like animal characters, full uh, the full costumes. He had a different definition, quote, school children dress up as animals, cats or dogs during the school day. They meowed and they bark, he said. And now schools are wanting to put litter boxes in the schools for these children to use. How is this sanity? What? <laughs> Bruce, what are you doing? But within hours, this is the Washington Post, Bostelman backtracked and admitted the accusations were inaccurate. Boy, there's an understatement. I was just something I felt that if this was really happening, we needed to address it and address it quickly, Bostelman said. According to the Associated Press, the senator did not immediately respond to the Washington Post request for comment earlier Tuesday. He said this in a floor speech, by the way. You can get the whole uh, thing in the piece, the whole video. But this is on the floor speech of the Nebraska Senate that he's saying this stuff at. Back to the post. Bostelman is the latest Republican state leader to repeat discredited rumors of students identifying as furries and demanding cat litter at school. Furries are people who identify with or are interested in anthropomorphic or cartoon animals. Think uh, the Broadway musical Cats, where you dress up, that kind of thing. People in the fandom often wear costumes and interact with their community online or at conventions. Uh, I've got a daughter that does cosplay. We went to cosplay conventions. You see a lot of these folks. They're mostly harmless. Yes, we make fun of them online, but they're not hurting anybody. Uh, the rumor in Nebraska was mentioned last month in a Facebook group, Facebook, the root of all evil, called Protect Nebraska's Children, according to John Kuyper, a reporter for KMTV, a parent asked about the litter boxes, noting that he was not trying to propagate a rumor. I just want to know if it's true, and I'm praying it's not. That's a direct quote. Although a secretary for the school replied that it was not true, Kemper said the speculation spread during his speech Monday, a clip which was viewed more than 600,000 times on Twitter alone and a million plus times on Facebook. Bostelman repeated an unconfirmed story about a student. He said that someone told him the child who identified as a cat 
defecated on the floor after the school refused to provide a litter box. Really, Bossman said, school administrators, what is going on? Nebraska Department of Education, what is going on? Again, he did this on the floor of the Nebraska Senate. Following his comments, Bossman and Democratic State Senator Lynn Waltz contacted school district asking if it was true. The district leaders assured none of this happened. Uh, Senator, you should do that before you give a big speech that is videoed, that is on the Internet, that will live forever now. Maybe you should have checked in before you made those comments. And of course, it turned out to just be an ugly rumor. Dude, you fell for the meme. Don't ever fall for the meme. You have this thing called Google. Look into it, especially if you're a sitting office holder. I looked into it after the comments were made and was assured it didn't happen. Folks, smashing send or posting that Facebook post or sending that tweet is a voluntary action. Make sure you do your due diligence before you did it. Otherwise, you end up looking really silly like Senator Bruce here. Check your stuff first. React on social media second. Otherwise, you end up looking way sillier than any furry ever did. Back on Hertel right after this. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. We always try to end on something of a little bit of a lighter note. Uh, the the Will Smith Chris Rock thing continues to have massive fallout. By the way, if you missed our conversation with our buddy Louis Mendez on yesterday's program about it, go check that out and check out Louis. Great contributor, great guy that you need to be following. But, uh, of course, like a lot of people, Will Smith woke up the next day with his social media exploding about all the things that had happened overnight reacting to Will Smith. The only problem, according to this Washington Post article, this wasn't Will Smith, the actor that actually slapped Chris Rock. This was William C. Smith Jr., who goes by Will Smith, Maryland State Senator, who went to bed early Sunday night. He was startled Monday morning when he woke up to a phone call that wouldn't stop dinging. That's when he learned the following. People had mistaken him for the Oscar-winning actor, the one who shares his name, the one who slapped comedian Chris Rock on Sunday night in front of the whole world over a joke about his wife's hair. Quote, I got a few messages saying you messed up. Actually, it was a little more colorful than that, said Smith, a Democrat who represented Montgomery County in the General Assembly since 2015. Smith said he got more than 100 new followers on Twitter in a matter of a few hours. He typically gets four or five, and that's in a good week. You got to laugh, Smith said. I needed some levity. Uh, Smith is an intelligence officer in the U.S. Navy Reserve. He was first elected to the House of Delegates in 2015 and served in the Senate of Maryland since December 2016. He said he was horrified when he saw the clips of the incident between the actor and the comedian. Quote, the act of violence was sad and unacceptable, the senator said, and I think there was a missed opportunity to address alopecia in a constructive way. And then I thought about what personal stuff someone must be going through to do something like that. The actor, Will Smith, was apparently reacting to the Rock's joke, to Chris Rock's joke about Jada Pinkett Smith's alopecia. He paused and then added to the new Oscar winner, I just hope he's okay. So heavy news item, learn the lesson, especially on social media like Twitter or Facebook. Make sure you're tagging and yelling at the right person before you go off half-cocked on the interwebs on whatever the main character of the day is. So that'll do it for her tell today. However, you're watching our program on YouTube or on the Big Talker Network's Facebook page. We sure appreciate it. If you're listening to any of the podcasting platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google, whatever the case may be, 
We really appreciate it. Please make sure you subscribe. That's important for a couple of reasons. One is you won't miss anything. Every single weekday, brand new episode of Herd Tell. Every afternoon, you'll get the Good Talks interview segment breakdowns twice on Sunday, our recap show over the weekends, also the long-form podcast when we deep dive into a subject. There's over 36 of those. You get all that when you subscribe. The other thing is that lets us track you and what you're watching and what you're listening to and that you're out there paying attention to us. If you have an option to do a review, uh, please do those as well. Also a rating on any of those platforms. We sure appreciate it. Uh, A couple extra clicks will let you share us on those platforms. Put us on your social media. We sure appreciate it. Let people know about our program. We're going to continue to try to turn down the noise of the news cycle for you. Get to the information. Don't just react to the caterwauling. Give you good stuff to discern the times that we live in. As long as you keep listening and watching, we're going to keep doing it because it's a partnership. We sure appreciate you. So until we see you next time, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. We'll talk to you again soon on Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.